Today we are participating in what's called uh, National Pulpit Freedom Sunday, and that is when we talk about kind of a controversial subject. Uh, so this sermon has been rated T for Teen, which is why our kids are uh, making a beeline for the door right now. If you're a teenager or maybe a 12-year-old, this will be suitable for you, but for younger kids, uh, this might have some content that, uh, that you wouldn't necessarily be, think your kids are ready for. Uh, necessarily some might be. Um, we're talking about God's design for marriage today, which can be a pretty sticky subject. Uh, just a few months ago, when uh, our president was set to be inaugurated, uh, sworn in for his second term in office, somebody was responsible for finding a pastor somewhere in the nation to give a prayer for uh, this inauguration. And so the man who was selected for this, this honor, this job, was a pastor from the Atlanta area named Louis Giglio. Uh, some of you may have heard of him. He's pretty well known. He's one of the best known pastors in America, due in large part to the fact that he frequently goes on tour with Chris Tomlin. If you've ever gone to a Chris Tomlin concert, Chances are pretty good Louis Giglio was there and he gave, uh, he gave a sermon in the middle of the concert. So obviously he's known. Um, if you're familiar with any of the Passion albums, you know, a lot of the songs that we sing are from the Passion albums like uh, Lay Me Down, Come to the Water. Uh, several songs that we do are from the Passion albums. Uh, those albums feature the best that modern worship has to offer. And this, this whole movement, this Passion movement, started with Louis Giglio's church, which is called Passion Church. Uh, so he seemed like the perfect person for the job. You know, he's a, a funny guy, he's nice, he's got a good image, but then it was discovered that in a mid-1990s sermon, he publicly declared homosexuality to be a sin. And that was something that kind of stirred a lot of feathers, ruffled a lot of feathers. So once this was discovered, he was forced to step down from this opportunity to pray at the pre uh, president's inaugural uh, address and he was replaced by someone who had apparently never spoken publicly uh, a word of condemnation against any type of sin, uh, but specifically against homosexuality. But let it be known, in light of all this stuff, that I am perfectly okay with the fact that by the time I'm done giving the sermon today, and once this gets on the internet, I will never, ever be selected to do the prayer at the president's inaugural uh, address. So uh, today has been a day that's been designated nationwide uh, to talk about God's design for marriage, and that, uh, that includes, or, or maybe I should say, why that excludes homosexual marriage, which, as we all know, was legalized here in Washington uh, just in the last election. In fact, there have been, I believe, over 4,200 homosexual marriages performed since it was legalized. So there are thousands of pastors today across the nation who are actually speaking on this very same subject. Uh, the subject of homosexuality has been uh, has been a subject that's received more attention, greater attention in the media, and you know between people just having discussions than any other subject I believe during my entire adult life. Uh, before the advent of modern television, internet, uh, you know all sources of media, whether that be movies or you know whatever, what have you, it would take years. Sometimes it would even take multiple generations for the public sense of morality on a given issue to shift. But the American public's views on homosexuality and gay marriage have been swayed more quickly than any other major issue 
in our nation's history. In less than 20 years, it has completely flipped around, thanks in large part to a book called After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 1990s, which was written by two practicing homosexual men who were trained in marketing and advertising at Harvard University. They were trained by the best to be the best. They knew what they were doing, so they wrote this book, and this book really served as the game plan of the homosexual agenda. And it's been given a great amount of credit for the swaying of the average American's opinion about homosexuality. At the heart of this game plan that was developed in this book was an attack on the average American's sense of empathy. Empathy is feeling sorry for somebody, being able to relate to somebody. And, and you know, if, you can, if they can get you to feel sorry for somebody, man, they, they've got you. They've got you. They can take you any place they want. The plan was to have characters in television shows be bullied, treated unfairly, uh, treated inhumanely, maybe even beat up uh, when all they wanted was a chance to love. After all, how can love ever be a bad thing, right? That's, that's kind of the message behind all of it. How can love ever be a bad thing? Why would we prevent somebody from wanting to love somebody else or express their love towards somebody else? But really, this is a loaded question because the term love has been redefined in just the last 50 or so years. Thomas Aquinas, a great philosopher, uh, defined love as the desire for the greatest moral good of another person. But secular society has redefined love as being the desire for somebody else to be happy. And so they've redefined words like tolerance, too. Tolerance isn't believing that somebody's wrong, but you know, peacefully coexisting with them anyway. Tolerance now means accepting whatever a person chooses to do, whether there's any moral basis for it or not. But, you know, so there's a huge difference between this classic definition of love, the Bible's definition of love, and the definition that society as a whole has given it over the past 50 years. But the truth is, nobody really believes that everybody else has the undeniable right to be happy, but not moral. If it makes me happy to drive my car 100 miles an hour in a 20-mile-an-hour speed zone, no judge in his right mind is going to say, well, you were happy doing it, so you know, that, I guess that justifies it, doesn't it? Case dismissed. Nobody's going to say that. Nobody's going to say that. You know, if it makes me happy to go around kicking everybody in the gut, uh, you know, who's, who's got wearing a plaid shirt, and nobody's wearing a plaid shirt today, so I'm, Gordon, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> if, oh, yeah, and, and shy, too. And, and, oh, I got three of you. I'll see you after service. If it makes me happy to go around and kick people in the gut just because they're wearing a plaid shirt, chances are pretty good you're not going to think it's okay. My happiness doesn't justify my immorality. So uh, the the question that we have to ask ourselves is, does homosexuality really hurt anything then? does, Does it hurt? I mean, why not let two people who love each other by the modern definition, why not let them get married regardless of their gender? Does it really hurt anything? The answer is yes. And before we're done here today, you're going to see why. But apart from that, we tend to forget that David declared in Psalm 24 verse 1, he said, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. It's all his. All of this is his. He created it. We are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. You might say, oh, this is my body. No, this is not your body. This is a body that belongs to God. Everybody's body belongs to God. We are not our own. Nobody is their own. 
Nobody else sets the rules. God sets the rules because he created all that exists. It all belongs to him. It's not, uh, you know, it's not like he's concerned with public polls and, and opinions of the masses. He couldn't care less if the entire world disagreed with him on how he feels about something. The whole world is still his. And his view, his position, his instructions are ultimately the only thing that matters. The question is then, where do we find his view? Where do we find his, his stance on this position of, of homosexuality and, and marriage? You know, we could start with, uh, with the book of Leviticus, where homosexuality is labeled an abomination. It's not like every sin is labeled an abomination. Only these really sick, really perverse ones are labeled an abomination. So we could start there. Uh, we could start in Romans chapter 1, where Paul describes homosexuality as a fruit of sin, as a fruit of human depravity. Uh, he talks about how humanity inherently knows the truth about God, that we're born with this, this truth where we know that God exists, but that in wickedness, out of the wickedness of our hearts, humanity suppresses the truth about God. And the next step, Paul says, is that a culture will make the profane uh, sacred and the sacred profane. At this point, pleasure will be mistaken for being the greatest good. That's what we call hedonism, believing that pleasure is the greatest good. To use Isaiah's language, uh, a culture will start calling what is good evil and what is evil good. Has our culture done that? Absolutely we have. Absolutely. The result is a rejection, Paul tells us. The result is a rejection of God's law and the order that he established in creation. And it results in the trading of the worship of God for the worship of man, which has another step. It leads to God turning away from a people, turning away from a nation due to their wickedness. And what follows after that is the establishment of what Paul calls unnatural sexuality, in which women desire women rather than men, and men desire men rather than women. And that's where our nation is right now. That's, that, that's the step that we're in right now. It's the final step. And so we find the answer in Romans. That's one place. We can also find the answer about what God thinks about homosexuality in 1 Corinthians, where Paul's giving what I call kind of a, a spiritual spanking to these people who are really on the verge of all backsliding. It's a group of Christians who had no idea how to live out their faith, what, what uh, being a Christian was really all about and how it should affect their decisions in life. And so thus they were tempted to return to the ways that they knew before they knew Jesus. And so Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, which is uh, basically a transvestite or uh, a man who's too feminine, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this sounds pretty hopeless almost, doesn't it? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, even idolaters are listed here, and every single one of us commits idolatry every time we sin. It's what Martin Luther identified as the root of all sin. Whenever we sin, it's because we've turned away from God and we've bowed before some other false god. So, but, but really what Paul's focusing on here is lifestyle. 
lifestyle. These are things that these people had a lifestyle of doing before. He's focusing on people who are morally skewed overall, people who love the pleasure of the flesh. Not people who just trip, but people who love and embrace the the pleasure of the flesh. That was the Corinthian culture by and large. It's ours too. Man, if you ever want to do a study that, you know, that shows a biblical culture very similar to the American culture, read the, uh, the first and second Corinthian books. Uh, but look at what he writes next. Look at what Paul writes next. He says in uh, verse 11, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So these were people who would never have been able to stand before God in judgment, but Paul makes it clear that they had been cleansed of their unrighteousness when they turned from these things. Yes, they had to turn from these things. That's why Paul says they were, uh, and then he says, but you were washed, sanctified, justified. So obviously, God's view on homosexuality is also found in 1 Corinthians. Some people, however, have discounted Paul's writings, and what they'll say is, well, you know, Paul was just kind of an extremist. He wasn't really on the same level as Jesus, and Jesus said to love our neighbors. Fine, let's see what Jesus had to say when, we, when he was asked about marriage. When Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce, he referred back to the beginning of creation, saying, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's from Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. And actually, Jesus is quoting Scripture there, and we're going to cover that today. But did you catch what he said? He said that because God made male and female, a man shall leave his parents to be joined to his wife and become one flesh with her. Now, I love the fact that Jesus refers back to the beginning of creation because if there's anything that we know about the beginning of creation, the six days of creation, it's that God declared all of it in the beginning to be good. Day one, God declares that everything he's created is good. Day two, same thing, all good. Day three, everything's good. Day four, good. Day five, good. Day six, what happens on day six? Because he doesn't declare that it's good. He creates man and woman, and he declares that it's very good. Verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1, he says it's very good. There's your chapter of, uh, your summary of chapter 1. And then we get to, uh, to chapter 2, and we get a more in-depth look. Uh, the, the author kind of zooms in on, uh, on each of these days. So we get a, a more in-depth understanding of these days, but especially of this sixth day. Most of you probably know this chapter pretty well. But there's some crucial information in here about God's design for marriage that I want us to, uh, to take particular note of. Uh, in verse 15, we see that God creates Adam in the Garden of Eden uh, from the dust of the earth and assigns him the job of cultivating and keeping it. Uh, and then we continue in verses 18 to 20, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. We read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper suitable for him. So the first observation that God makes about Adam is that it's not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good for a man to be alone. Adam has yet to realize this because this is all that he's ever known. He only knows what it's like to be alone, but God sees it. And for the first time in all of the days of creation, the first time in natural history, God declares something is not good. Now, you might be wondering why, why God didn't, just from the beginning, uh, see that this was going to be an issue. Why, why didn't he foresee this earlier? And I would actually say he did. He did see that this was going to be uh, an issue. He's, he foresaw it from all of eternity, and he had a plan. And so at this point, when we read that you know, God sees that, he's, uh, that, that it's not good for him to be alone and that he has this plan to create a helper, we kind of mentally skip ahead as if Eve is created between the lines here. But that is not the case. Eve hasn't been created yet. So God declares he's going to make this helper suitable for Adam. And that, by the way, is the purpose of marriage by God's design. But God wanted Adam to recognize, to to, to feel this need that he had for a suitable helper as well. So God responds, not by creating Eve, but by bringing all of these animals to Adam to be named. Now, what do you think Adam was noticing as all of these animals were coming to him and and being named. I think he probably noticed a couple things. First of all, I think he probably noticed that none of the animals were like him. None of the animals could have a conversation with him. None of the animals could think the way that he thinks. None of the animals could could act the way that he acted. You know, we get taught in, uh, in our schools that we're simply the animal that's made it to the top of the food chain. That is nonsense. That's not, don't, don't believe that. No, humans are not animals. We are not animals. Animals act on instinct. Uh, instinct. Humans act on reason. We have the ability to think. We, so we act on intellect and reason, often in a way that's actually contrary to our instinct. Right? Okay, so animals and humanity are created separately. They're different. That's the first thing that he undoubtedly observed. But he also couldn't have missed the fact that there were some boy animals, and there were some girl animals. There were male animals and female animals, and that they complemented one another perfectly. But no animal, no animal in all of creation complemented Adam in the same sense. The animals had a completeness, a wholeness, that Adam was lacking. And none of the animals complemented and completed Adam. So we continue. Verses 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So here we see that God creates a woman from a rib. The Hebrew word is actually side, uh, and the assumption is that, it, that it's, it's a rib. Uh, and as, as Adam is uh, in this deep sleep. Uh, this all happens while he's in this deep sleep. So notice that Adam hasn't come to God and articulated this, this, uh, this emptiness, this thing that he's lacking, his need for a companion. He doesn't come to God with this problem. This is entirely a sovereign act 
of God. It's God's plan. It's God's design. If it had been Adam's design, think about it. He probably would have thought, you know, hey, God, why don't you just create a woman out of nothing like you've created everything else out of nothing, if, he, if this was his idea. Why, didn't, why don't you just create her out of nothing? Or why don't you create her from the dust of the earth like you created me? Uh, you know, why would God have used part of Adam's body when God was perfectly capable of, of finding easier, less invasive ways of creating a woman? Why, when God was perfectly capable of simply speaking her into existence and creating her, you know, the same way he's created Adam, why didn't he do that? And I, th- I think I have an answer for that. Uh, it involves a little bit of speculation, so don't, uh, don't, you know, this isn't a hill that I would die on. But I think it's because God wanted Adam to have an understanding that he and the, wo- uh, and the woman, Eve, were two halves of the same whole. The woman isn't created as a separate being in creation. She's not the second one to be uh, created. Just as Adam was created in perfection, so too Eve was a part of this initial perfect act of creation. So she was actually equal to Adam. She was as, she was as human as he is because she came from him. And this was something that Adam may have been tempted to deny if she hadn't been created completely, or if she had been uh, created completely separately from himself. So he could never say, you're inferior to me, or you're not, you're not equal to me, because she came from him. So obviously, they were equal. Interestingly, the word helper, by the way, uh, doesn't indicate in Scripture, it, it never indicates uh, a subordinate, uh, a lesser than, uh, you know, an assistant, a servant, and it never refers to any of those things. In fact, what we see a lot of the time when we find this word helper, it's referring to God when somebody is in need. The Hebrew term always refers to a powerful source of support, not an assistant, not a lesser than, a powerful source of support. And in fact, one of the most common uses of this Hebrew term throughout the Old Testament is in reference to an armed military. And that's the term that designates this woman that's going to be Adam's companion. So the reason for the woman being created is to be an influential, powerful companion who was, by nature, on equal footing with Adam. And so how does Adam respond when he wakes up and sees her? Verses 23 to 25. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so Adam gives her a name too. He wasn't necessarily supposed to, but he gave her a name. And he realizes that she is the perfect companion for him, the perfect complement by nature to him. Sin has not entered into creation at this point, and thus there is no corruption, no flaw, no imperfection whatsoever in the woman who's been created for the sake of being Adam's partner and helper. She isn't Adam, but she's like Adam. She completes and she compliments him. Not saying, oh, Adam, you look good today. I mean, they fit together. They, they are of the same nature. They, they are of uh, the, same, um, the same breed, same type of thing. So she alone, unlike the animals, she alone is suitable for him. So God created the perfect person 
to fulfill a very specific, very necessary purpose. Remember that this is all on day six of creation, if we read it in light of chapter one. So this isn't just good. This is very good. This is very good, according to the Lord's declaration in Genesis chapter one, verse 31. So this passage concludes, uh, notice that the quote Uh, Notice that that part of uh, this passage is a quote. And so this passage concludes by telling us that it's for this reason. What reason? The fact that Eve was created from Adam's side and thus complements and completes Adam perfectly. It's for this reason that a man shall leave his father and mother to be joined to his wife and shall become one flesh with her. And we learn that they were both naked and not ashamed as they stood in God's presence with one another. We need to understand that it's only, it's only in the context of marriage that a man and woman can be naked and not ashamed before God. This is the context. This is the only context that God designed for humanity to be simultaneously naked with another person and unashamed. What we need to understand about this story is that nothing here is incidental Nothing here is by accident. It's all by God's design. It's all very, very intentional, down to the most minute details. God has made a perfect creation, a perfect creation. That includes the gender of each partner in marriage. God is glorified in their similarities, and he's glorified in their differences. He is glorified in man's completeness in the woman, and he is glorified in the woman's completeness in the man. He's glorified in their becoming one flesh, and he's glorified in their ability to fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply, which we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God is glorified in this process. He's glorified in their offspring following the order of creation that God had intended and designed. At the heart of God's glory in his design for marriage is this act of becoming one flesh. One flesh between a man and a woman. So what we see here, we see that this partnership is the, that partnership itself is the primary purpose of marriage. But, but procreation, that's what it means to be one flesh. It's procreation. Procreation is all one, uh, also one of the primary purposes of marriage. The world will tell us that babies are accidental, you know, that it's a byproduct of uh, you know, an, an accident that shouldn't have happened. But here we see the undeniable intention of it in the context of the covenant of marriage, that it is a beautiful thing, that it's part of the purpose of a man and woman becoming one, becoming one flesh, and that children are a gift of God. Throughout Scripture, we see that God is glorified by the confinement of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. We find it in uh, the Song of Songs. We find it in Proverbs. We find it in the Law of Moses. We find it in the teachings of Jesus. We find it in the teachings of Paul. We find it throughout Scripture that the context for human sexuality is only marriage. You know, I remember being in college and having uh, some friends tell me that, well, you know, God made sex, therefore sex must be a good thing, and therefore we should be free to experience it however we please, with anyone, with everyone, whoever we want. The first two parts here are correct. God designed sex, 
And so sex is good. But the last part not only doesn't logically flow, that we should be able to just experience it however we want. That doesn't logically flow, but it's not what Scripture teaches either. God created a certain context in which it's good. God created everything to be good, but you take it outside of its intended context, and it's not good anymore. Look at what Paul said to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, that's where we're going to uh, continue with our study here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is, is designed, or is, is a chapter that's designated as kind of a, a chapter on marriage. Uh, God says, or Paul says, it is not good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So Paul isn't saying, by the way, that sex is a bad thing. He's saying that it's wicked, that it's sin when it's experienced outside of the covenant of marriage. How do we know that? Because that's what he's unwrapping here as we continue in chapter 7. He knows, Paul knows, that this temptation to indulge our flesh, to pursue the pleasure of the flesh, and for us to think that we can design the rules for how this should all be experienced, he knows He knows that temptation can be incredibly strong. And so he follows that up by writing in verses uh, 2 to 4. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So I want us to all notice that at the heart of this part, this, these three verses, we see that God's design for sex is never about self-pleasure. It's never about the pleasure of ourselves. As far as the world is concerned, that's what the purpose of sex is, so we can enjoy, so that we can feel good. But that's not what Paul's saying here. It's totally different. Paul says that the husband's body belongs to his wife, and the wife's body belongs to her husband. Sex should never be purely about self-satisfaction, but that's exactly what our culture, that's exactly what the world, what our society, our flesh, that's what it wants to make sex all about. It's never about that. It's never about us. Contrary to what we get taught by the world, God's design for marriage includes the necessary surrender of all self-autonomy. It's a practice in submission to one another. That's why the church's relationship is likened to marriage with Christ. We're we're said to be the bride of Christ. It's about selfless surrender. Our bodies don't belong to us. Our bodies belong to our respective spouses. And if you don't have a spouse right now, by the way, teenagers, all of you guys, hear this. If you don't have a spouse right now, your body belongs to your future spouse. Your body belongs only to your future spouse. It does not belong to you. None of us has the right to do with it as we please. We belong to God first and foremost, and we belong to our spouses, present or future. We're the third person on the list. We're the third person on the chain of command at best. There are two people who rank above us, so we don't decide what we do with our bodies. We don't get to decide how to satisfy ourselves sexually And this says nothing about simply being in a loving or committed relationship. Paul doesn't doesn't use those words. He knows those words, but he doesn't use them here. He's talking about marriage. God has designed a spouse for each person 
to experience sexual satisfaction in the context of marriage, one husband and one wife, period. But notice that Paul says here that every man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Should is a key word here. Paul knows that if a man doesn't have a wife and a woman doesn't have a husband, the temptation to engage in sexually immoral behavior by experiencing sex in a context other than God designed us to experience it in is going to be unbelievably strong. Teenagers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's why Paul goes on to say, in verse 5, he says, Do not deprive one another. Deprive one another how? Sexually. Do not deprive one another sexually except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Ah, self-control. That's a tough one. What prevents us from sexually losing self-control? A man and wife coming together, experiencing sexual intimacy in the context that God designed it to be experienced in. Uh, Paul is clearly telling us that any temptation that we might have to, ha- to experience sexual pleasure outside of that context is a temptation from Satan himself. It's a temptation from Satan himself. So this is a serious danger in remaining single. Uh, so Paul continues by writing in verses 8 and 9. We're kind of skipping ahead here. He, he, he does talk about uh, that, that there is a very special gift for some people who are called, specifically called, to be uh, single and celibate. But that's a special calling. He continues talking about marriage in verses 8 and 9 where he writes, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than it is to burn with passion. So Paul makes it clear that instead of submitting to our passions, which is what we do when we try to experience uh, sexual pleasure outside of the context that God created, any time that we do that, and we're submitting to it, and instead of submitting to our passions and our pleasures, a man and woman should marry and thereby submit to one another. Now, I don't mean to, to ruffle any feathers, but I, I just want to give you guys something to think about. When do guys reach their sexual peak? According to medical research and the 2000 census, it falls anywhere between ages 15 and 18. What about women? Between 18 and 20. At the very least, I think what this had me doing was questioning. Questioning why our culture has convinced me and, and so many of us that getting married after our mid-twenties, after we've gotten ourselves established in life and got all these selfish habits, which honestly you have, you you grow up not being accountable to anybody else, you develop selfish habits, why do we think that it's better to marry later in life, like say around 30, 35, than it is to marry in the middle of these years where we are hormonally raging with passion? We know that when a woman and man do marry, Rather than burn with passion, burn with sexual lust, it's a very good thing because God said that it was a very good thing from the beginning of creation. And that's why the author of Hebrews says this. I'll leave you with this one. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be defiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral. 
I did? What did I misspeak? Oh, defiled. Sorry. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. <laughs> Minor difference. Wow. I don't know if I could have made a more significant mistake there. Um, (laughs) Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You know, we we typically think, and I think the author of Hebrews is addressing this, we typically think that when the marriage bed is defiled, it's, it's it's adultery. But what's made clear here is that any and all sexual activity outside of God's design for marriage will defile the marriage bed. That doesn't matter if it's premarital sex. It doesn't matter if it's an affair. It doesn't matter if it's pornography. It doesn't matter. Any sexual experience outside of God's design defiles the marriage bed. He made us stewards of marriage. You know, with, with all of this established, he, he designed marriage. We know that he designed it. He's the one who created it. Did man create it? No, God designed it, and he made it perfectly. He made it perfectly. He made us stewards of it, but he's the one who made it what it is. He's the one who defines what marriage is. God's design for marriage includes one woman and one man in a relationship, a covenant relationship that's unbreakable that they have with one another. And anything other than that, I would say, is by definition not marriage. One man, one woman, an unbreakable covenant with each other. Anything else is not marriage. Any arrangement, which includes some arrangement other than what God has in his perfect knowledge, in his perfect sovereignty, what he has sovereignly ordained, anything else is not marriage. It's a cheap imitation. Homosexual marriage, therefore, I would say, is not marriage. The government can call it marriage if they want, but it is not marriage. And I would encourage you to hold the same view, that that is not marriage. It's sexual immorality. It's sin. Does homosexual marriage really hurt anything? Man, there are studies out there that show all kinds of harmful things that result in society. And besides, all sin calls for God's wrath, both on an individual and on a nation when it spreads. And so thus, all sin does cause both social and personal harms. That doesn't mean God can't cleanse it. It doesn't mean that God can't turn a person's life around. And, you know, there's the question, well, you know, what if it's just part of a person? You know, God, did, what, about, what about if God created them to be gay? Now, first of all, there are no studies out there that have ever demonstrated that to be true. But I'll approach this question more from a theological perspective, perspective, and that is that we are all born with a sin nature. We are all born skewed towards sin. And there is nothing, nothing in all of creation, no act that Jesus cannot redeem. He died for any sin we have committed. He can redeem anybody out of this lifestyle. And so as Christians, we have to stand against homosexual marriage, just like we stand against any and all sin. It's not that we've just singled out this particular people group and we're trying to to oppress them or take away their civil rights. In fact, they have 
the same rights. Homosexuals have the same rights as straight people. They have the right to marry somebody of the opposite gender. Everybody has that right. Marriage is rooted in the glory of God and in the personal worship of God, the surrender to God. It's not for the worship or the pleasure of ourselves. God's design for marriage is kind of like the gold standard of marriage. Let's say that tomorrow the government declared that all common dirt is going to be just as valuable as gold. What do you think is going to happen to the value of gold? It's going to go down. It's the same thing with marriage. Calling, trying to say that two things which are clearly not equal are equal doesn't make them equal. It just doesn't. If anything, it'll just cheapen gold. And so this is an issue that we've got to take seriously. It's about God's glory. So we've got to take it seriously if we take God and his word seriously. This is an issue of stewardship over something that God designed, that God created, and he put it in our hands to be stewards over. So take responsibility for it. Don't settle for cheap imitations, and don't allow yourself to get comfortable with the marriage bed, anyone's marriage bed, whether that's yours or somebody else's, which is most, most likely somebody else's. Don't get comfortable with the idea with the marriage bed being defiled in any way. And keep God's glory at the heart of marriage. It's his, so let's keep it. Let's pray. Lord God, we are reminded of the fact that you love us with a love that we have difficulty understanding and that you, are, you alone are able to redeem us from any and every sin. God, I pray that we would see marriage as a reflection of our right relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, that we can only have a right relationship with you through your son, Jesus. You sent him to die for us. He paid the price, God, so that any sin that we commit doesn't have to be a hindrance between us and you, but it can be forgiven because you paid the price with your own son. So, Lord, I pray for our nation as our nation continues to turn, uh, turn away from the traditional view of marriage and, and toward this uh, depraved view of, of marriage, that it's just uh, a temporary commitment for the sake of personal happiness. Lord, I, I pray that you would teach us to see it as something that was designed by you to glorify you. Thank you, Lord, that you love us enough that you would seek the best for us. That when you say you love us, it's not that you just want us to be happy, it's that you want us to be holy. And so I pray, Lord, that our marriages would make us happy, but that they would also make us holy so that we might glorify you and reflect your character in our marriages. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. 
If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus.